The reading is taken from 1 Samuel, chapter 17, verses 19 to the end. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel, and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches, and will give him his daughter, and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine, and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine, that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why have you come down, and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go, <coughs> will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, 
ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with a sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand." When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharem as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from the striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have this story that is very well known, and yet it's our story. It's not just a myth. It really happened. And not only that, Father, you sent your son Jesus to be the final king, and I pray this morning we have more faith and trust in Jesus. Amen. We are going through the life of David. Uh, We've seen David the shepherd. We've seen David last week comfort Saul with his music and possibly even poetry, but this week we see David the king, David the warrior, the the David we've been waiting for. Um, In some ways, as a pastor, you might call this a softball. You know, this wouldn't be an easy one to preach, right? This is David and Goliath, but I will say you could also really mess it up, you know? You all think you know it already. You're already planning your daydreams out and your lunch schedule, thinking I've heard this before. So I'm hoping you'll notice uh, this morning there's more than meets the eye here. I think, there's, I think there's something in this passage that I'm prone to forget, and we all are, and I hope you'll find it. Um, 
so bear with me for a, a silly illustration. There's a, there's a Naked Gun movie uh, where Leslie Nielsen is trying to disarm a bomb. And the bomb is ticking down. I don't honestly even remember which one this is. I just remember this scene. And, and the, the experts are trying to disarm and choose the wire. You know, is it the yellow or the green or the red? And, and they're, they're panicking, and the clock is winding down, and the drips of sweat are appearing on their foreheads. And, and, and the character that Leslie Nielsen plays is, sees this little black cord, and he follows the cord to the wall. And it's plugged in, and he just unplugs the, the cord, and the bomb just stops. And it's, it's very funny. And in a way, I think when we come to David, it's very tempting to say, you know, David is small, Goliath is big, and so David had this extra strength, but really David was just being David in this story. And David had what it took by, because of who he is and because of who God made him to be to easily slay the giant where everyone else is terrified. And so I think so often as Christians, we're stuck in, in, in looking at giants, the things that we struggle with, because we're looking at them incorrectly. We're looking at them like the world would look at them. And we struggle because we see our problems or our sins or our addictions as the world sees them. But this passage is saying the gospel frees you to learn how to unplug. The gospel frees you to learn how to slay these giants of your life. But you'll have to listen to the sermon to find out how. So let's dig in. I'm going to just start by restating the story briefly. Um, David is the better king in this story. Remember, Israel wanted a king like the other nations. So when, Saul, when Goliath comes out, there's probably a part of Israel that thinks, why don't we have that guy? Why don't we have a king like that? And we know that Saul, in our story, is hiding. He's kind of quivering. He's nervous. He's not sure what to do. So the Philistines have drawn up their armies on one ridge. There's a valley. Israel has drawn up its army. And for 40 days... They're sitting there in a stalemate. And, and the Philistines send out this Goliath from Gath, this champion, this mascot, to taunt the Israelites. And it's interesting if you read the, hear the taunt, he's, he doesn't say, come out and fight me, and if I win, I'll slay every one of you. He says, if I win, you'll be our servants, and if your champion wins, then we will all become your servants. And so it's a very interesting type of uh, scenario in warfare, but nonetheless... Israel is nervous, and as you know, in comes David. David is on the scene, and he's just a little shepherd boy, is the way it's appearing, at least to his brother Eliab, and he's just come to watch the fight, according to Eliab. But the truth is that we know David has had this special upbringing that has made him ready for this situation. He's also been anointed as king, which means the Holy Spirit is on him, and he feels justice, and he feels a sense of righteousness. So when he hears the taunt, it grips him at his soul. Who is this giant? Who is this Goliath that would, would blaspheme our God? I mean, he's very incensed. And so David um, decides he's going to do something about it. And he goes to Saul, and as you know, he explains that he wants to take care of this giant. And he does so using a Liam Neeson quote, right? I have a very special set of skills. I may not have money. But I have this special set of skills. And, uh, and he goes in and he explains a special set of skills. David, having been a shepherd and having a heart for sheep, has learned to protect them from lions and bears. He doesn't describe how to Saul, but we, of course, later find out how he does it. And just to understand what's happening with David, 
and what's happening with Goliath. I want to talk about Goliath for a moment. We didn't cover all the details in, in the reading. It's a very long uh, chapter. So Abby began at verse 19. But Goliath is ginormous, right? He's a giant. Now, there are debates on whether he's four cubits or six cubits. But let me just say, he's, he's, within six, he's either 6'6 six, six or 9'9, nine, nine, somewhere in that range. Okay? So he's big. Um, here, and I'm, I've wondered, like, how could you tell if you're Israel how big he is? Well, I'm sure they chose the shortest person to be the shield bearer. You know, so, well, that guy, oh, he's really tall. But not only that, he has a lot of armor on. He's got this, this I mean, just bronze helmet and the, the, the chain mail and the, all the way down the leg. I think they could tell, with that armor, this guy is strong. This guy is powerful. He is someone we don't want to mess with. And so... I think they were correct. It would be very foolish if you were an Israelite to put on Saul's armor or any armor and go out and engage warfare the way he wants to fight. He will beat you, right? But that's not David. David, as we know, has this special set of skills. He sees the guy and thinks, can't really run. You know, you can't really maneuver. Have you ever driven down the road and seen those gigantic hawks and the little birds just flying around pecking them? You know what I'm talking about? That's a massive hawk. Why can't he's just because of the fact of his size and the and the what he's built to do? Those little birds are special and can come in and take care of him. Well, David has a special ability to to make Saul's weaknesses exposed, and we know he does. He gathers five smooth stones, puts them in his pouch, and he approaches the line. And I love the the back and forth. Goliath is absolutely shocked. This child walking forward, at least from his perspective, right? And you can see it in verse uh, 42. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, his disdain, he disdained him. For he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And he said, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Apparently, in that day and age, that meant something, because David uses the same language. Um, but I love David's reply. He says, you come to me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the enemies of Israel, whom you have defied. David sees the situation completely differently. It wasn't just, I can do this because I'm special. It's, I can do this because you are blaspheming God and you're trying to fight a spiritual battle with old weaponry. And I'm here to take you on. And of course, you know the story, right? They rush at each other. I don't know if Goliath moved much at all, but David slings the rock into the forehead of Goliath. I don't know why the forehead was exposed, but my guess would be that the, the helmet was designed for swords and clubs and not for rocks flying this direction really fast. And he goes down. Boom. He's dead. And David cuts his head off. And you're just like, yeah, you know? But that night at the campfire, that's right. <laughs> that night at the campfire, you're not saying, did you see what I did? What are you saying? Did you see what David did? That's what you're uttering. So as I want, that's our story. David is a, is a special king. In fact, 
Point number one, if I had to title, is David is the true or the better king than Saul. Saul should have been able to take Goliath, but he was cowering. David, who's been anointed king, though nobody knows it, is the true king, acts like a king, and slays the giant. Okay. As we get ready for number two, point two is going to be Jesus is the best king. I want to read this quote from Tim Keller. He says, there are only two ways to read the Bible. You can ask the question, is it basically about me, or is it basically about Jesus? What am, we can read and say, what must I do? Or we can read the Bible primarily and say, what has he done? And to understand, I think so often we'll read a story like David and Goliath, and it'd be very easy to conclude right now and say, here's the deal. Go and do likewise. Slay your giants. Right? Make your list, circle the biggest one, and take it out. In the name of Jesus, or something like that. But I want to argue that we'll get there, but you have to go through this middle point first. And that is recognizing how this story points to the true king. You, uh, when you read the Bible, you have to constantly back up and look at the entire storyline. This is exactly what Jesus did. I mentioned this before on the road to Emmaus when he reveals who he is. He tells the disciples, let me show you in the Bible, at that point all they had was the Old Testament, all the places that point to me. Right? And certainly, as the one who would be termed the son of David, he sees himself in David. He is the true king, Jesus. Go back to the garden. Satan has convinced Adam and Eve to eat of the fruit they, were, they had everything perfect. They were in perfect relationship with each other and with God, but they ate the fruit. And what was the, what was the uh, punishment for that? Death. I, it's easy. Well, sin was, the, sin was the result. Sin is a symptom of death, but what happened in the garden was death. Something we are so used to now. It's weird. We're used to it and we're shocked by it at the same time. We know it's coming, and then you read the paper, and you can't believe it happened to that person. Yet we know it's happening to us. It's happening every day. And so it happened to Adam and Eve, and God, in the cool of the day, comes in and says, I have a remedy. In Genesis 3.15, you, serpent, will nip his heel, but he, the son of Eve, is going to crush your head. The future David, the real David, the real king, will crush you, Satan, in death. Did we not just sing that, by the way, this uh, song that prepared? I love the second verse. Um, Stretch out thine arm, victorious king, to Jesus, right? My reigning sins subdue. Subdue my sin. Drive the old dragon from his seat with all his hellish crew. When you see David slaying Goliath, you should first and foremost, we should think about the way God has rescued us in Christ. When you get to 1 Corinthians, Paul says the gospel is foolish to the world. And indeed, the way Jesus has rescued you and I is foolish. Years ago, I started playing chess, and I was getting kind of good for an average bad player, and I played a friend of mine who was smarter but newer at chess, and I was going to beat him. And we were playing, and I'm playing chess, and I don't know, you don't have to know a lot about the game to know this. The queen is like, that's your piece. The queen, right? That's your special ops. Queen can go any direction as far as she wants until she hits a player. The king, he just goes one step in every direction. You just got to protect that poor dude. And uh, in the game with my friend, I captured the queen. 
And I just felt like you feel when you won a game. I just, we won, I won, he's been beaten, I'm looking at his face, and he has this puzzled look with a small grin. And in two moves, I was checkmated. And I learned for the first time what a queen sacrifice meant. Ah, I couldn't believe it. I was duped. And he pulled me right in. And it reminds me that the goal is not to save the queen. The goal is to win the game. And so Jesus comes on the scene, right? He has this unique upbringing. He's different from everybody else. One way that's radically different is he's sinless, right? He has no sin. When they go to Jerusalem to find him at the age of 12, he's not looking at comic books. He's in the temple. Right? Worshiping God and teaching the elders. And so, when his passion comes, I was reading even this morning uh, in Luke, you know, in the upper room, he asks a question, he's talking to them, and, and one of the questions is, you know, after I'm gone, after the Son of Man suffers, take your, you know, he sent them out with nothing before, now take your sword and your sack, you know, your normal stuff, and one of them says, we have two swords. We can take on Rome, Jesus. We've got two swords. You know, he's just like, oh, okay. And then he goes and he prays, prays in the garden, finds his disciples sleeping. When Judas shows up, Satan has entered him. And you know, I would never have thought this way until probably two weeks ago on this passage. I thought, I've always just wondered, why would Satan even bother? Doesn't he know Jesus has to die? And it really dawned on me finally, no. He really thinks, I've got him. I'm in Judas. I'm making Judas arrest him. He's going off to trial. He's answering the questions way off. You know, he's actually admitting that he's the Messiah. You know, you, I, I'm not trying to belittle Satan or make him humorous, but you know he had to be thinking, I've done it. And then he dies on a cross. And you know that Satan had to think, I don't know what just happened, but I won the victory. And then he raises from the dead. And it's like, oh, he slays the dragon. Satan is defeated. That's how it has to happen. And all of the gospel comes to life in that moment because what Jesus shows by rising from the dead is this. The enemy is not Rome. The enemy is not your spouse. The enemy is not the other team, political party, the boss. The enemy is death. The enemy that you face every day is death. And the problem that I think we face is we, as Christians especially, say, oh, Jesus conquered the cross, I long for eternity. But functionally, we're living out a life where we're amazed at Goliath. We're amazed at the cultural representations of beauty and glory and honor, and we want to have it. Right? We might say things like, in the name of Jesus. But we really want to live in the flesh and in the, under the law of sin and death. And yet Jesus has come and he's conquered the grave. Is that where you find your hope? With Jesus conquering the grave? I want to now look at our third point is our response. Where are we in this passage? When you read that passage, we're, we're Americans. We like, you know, you're raised on little stories of, you know, the, the underdog. And you come to David and Goliath. And you want to be David. I have bad news for you. Nobody in here is David. Now, go after it. Try your best. But I'm just telling you, that's not the story. 
Who are we in the passage? Who do you think you are? I think Christians are the scared Israelites, terrified. We see the giant, and we don't know what to do. And when Jesus comes and slays Goliath, I mean, when David comes and slays Goliath, did you notice the response of the people? Well, I'm not in the right, I'm in Romans, so how can I read that to you? What do they do in 1 Samuel 17? After David takes his head, cuts the head off, it says, And the men of Israel and Judah rose, and with a shout, and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath, and the gates of Ekron. What did they do? They had no fear. They had no terror. They get up and they run. And the enemy scatters. Right? James tells us, if you, um, what does he say? The devil flee the devil. If you, I just went blank on the verse from James that I have memorized. Resist the devil, thank you, April. And he will flee from you. Because Jesus has conquered Goliath, we are now set free to run toward the enemy. And that is the calling of this church and the church universal. We are to run to the dark places. When the gospel is at work, we don't hide in our bunkers with our guns. We go into the problem areas, don't we? We go after disease. We go after conflict. Not harshly, but we long to see it healed. Broken relationships. Hurricane disasters. We go in. And we can do that with a very amazing reason because the body you're living in has already passed from death to life. That's what you have. You have a body that's been healed. Not, it may not look healed. right? Here's a, here's a really bad analogy. You're wearing your old pair of shoes right now. You, know, you get the new pair of shoes. Now you can take the other pair and mow the yard because you got the good pair over there. This body is fading. We want to take care of it. We want to eat healthy, all that good stuff. But it's fading. We need to quit protecting it. Take it out. You know, take the cover off the sofa. Sit down. Put it to use. That's what the gospel frees us to do. Another example um, would be the beekeeper outfit. The gospel is the beekeeper outfit. I hate being stung by bees. But I think if I had that outfit on, I could walk into a hive and reach right into the middle of it, knowing that I'm safe. Where is that in the scriptures? Paul has struggled in Romans 7 with his sin, with the reality of the fall. He says, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Our flesh, which we still have, still sees Goliath and we're terrified. Even if he's laying down, we, we still wonder. He, he could maybe stand up like the movies. You know, the guy never dies in the movies. But in the spirit, we know he's been slain and we can charge in. So are you living by the spirit or are you living by the flesh? That's what I think this passage is asking us. Are we Eliab looking at the king and saying, what are you doing? Or are we the other Israelites who are running forward with shouts of confidence in what Jesus has done? Paul goes on in, verse, in chapter 8, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So here's the hard work for you and for me. 
we have to recognize that all of the struggles we have, and I don't mean the actual problems, I mean our responses to them, our fallen responses to our actual problems, uh, either are in Christ or they're in the flesh. And if they're in the flesh, we're, we're cowering, cowering. I don't know how to say that word. Cowering. We're, we're, we're shaking. Okay, I'm going to change the word up. On the sidelines, waiting for the king. And Jesus has already had victory. So I'm trying to think about how to plant the picture of that. Um, I mean, if you have a bad medical exam, right? That is something to be very sorrowful over. But I know people, one lady that comes to mind in particular, who hates that she has cancer. But she has, I can't even describe to you her, her the, just, it looks as if she's saying she has, you know, poison ivy. The way she talks about it. I wish it weren't here, but I'm going to be okay. It's amazing. She knows Jesus. If another person gets it and they're just, they drop to their knees and they weep, it's fine to grieve, but at some point if you're incapacitated, it might be helpful to say, did you think you were going to live forever? And I feel like a hypocrite, and I am a hypocrite. Being a preacher is a complete hypocrisy because I live often out of unbelief. But what the gospel tells me is I can live in faith in what Christ has done is if I see the world with the giants slain, when I see the things that seem to capture my attention as being useless, and all of my energy is focused on the King, Jesus, and what he's done. We were watching an American experience on, on PBS. I'm not going to tell you even who it was about, because that would just get your mind off, but it was about a very popular American whom I liked. That's all I'm going to say. And then at the very end of the two episodes, he dies. And then all the guys that they've been interviewing explain how that went. And it was really sad. I'm a, he died in 1966. And I wasn't even alive, and I'm like, sad. What would it look like if that biography had a third episode? And they were able to go back and, let's say this person was in heaven, which I don't think this particular person might, I don't know. That's not my judgment. I don't think they were Christian, but I probably just tripped on some people's toes. But let's say he was a, he was a Christian, he, was, he followed Christ, and he dies in 1966, and the camera pans over to him in glory. And for the next two, third episode, two hours, you're seeing this person in heaven, with Jesus, in their new body. I wouldn't be sad. You, you see what I'm saying? That's what really happens. That's what really happens for the Christian, right? The thief on the cross goes into glory. I want that view, mindset to start sinking in our lives here so that we can run forward and charge the enemy. Is that your view? A little bit later in Romans, Paul says this, and the, and the children are going to memorize this um, I think they're going to memorize just verse 2. But verse 1 says, I appeal to you, therefore. Therefore. All of this stuff on the adoption, union with Christ, you have the Holy Spirit who cries, Abba, Father. All of that gospel, therefore, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed by this, to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. A living sacrifice means because of what Jesus has done, you can now offer your body because this is not the end. He offered his body and rose again. We offer our lives knowing we have glory. But here's the challenge. Are you living for glory or are you living for this life? Now, I think so often in American Christianity, 
what we do is we separate the two. Well, one day, someday, I'll be in heaven, and there I'll live for glory. But right now, I've got this business I'm running, or you know, these mouths to feed, and I'm just going to deal with this over here. The gospel doesn't see it that way. The Bible brings the two together. And I would argue that if you begin to live now like you've died and risen already, which is the truth, your life here will flourish. Your life here will be made of peace. If you're no longer worried about what, you, what someone thinks of your looks, your reputation, your house, right, your major, if that melts away and Jesus rises up, don't you think that would bring peace and joy? A few years ago, a friend of ours was involved in a, um, making a, a film, a small documentary um, called Return to Mogadishu. I think I might have used this illustration here before, but um, you know the famous book Black Hawk Down based on the actual, uh, I think it's called the Battle of Fallujah or the Battle of Mogadishu, but most of us know it as Black Hawk Down. It was going to be a one-hour special ops mission from the edge of Somalia, of Mogadishu and Somalia to the middle of town, capture the bad guys and get out. But as it started, one of the army rangers was coming out of the Black Hawk and falls 70 feet, and I believe he lives. And now the person who's the main, uh, his name is Jeff Strecker, his job changed from going after the bad guys to go get this special operative. And he turns and he goes in and he says he starts facing more gunfire than he would have ever known. The town was filled with people who had weaponry. They were shooting at him. He goes in and it's just havoc. He's losing men. They get to the edge of town. They finally get out. And they're at the edge of town. And um, he gets the news that a Black Hawk went down. That one of the helicopters actually crashed. And he, and he said he got out of the thing before he heard that through his helmet and just thought he was just done. He couldn't believe what he had just experienced for the last hour or two. And now his commanding officer says, I've got bad news. The Black Hawk went down. Your team is the only one available. You have to go back in. He has to go back into the middle of this town that has literally thousands upon thousands of people with weapons. And he's got his little guys on the street and Humvees tracking in, and he, and he does it. And he said, life and death became a little bit less significant that day. In fact, here was his prayer. He says, God, I'm going to die. I know it. I need your help. I'm putting my life in your hands. Now, he was already a Christian. But at that moment, he says, that's when I realized I'm going to die. And he says that prayer, after he prayed it, he didn't think, now I'm going to live. He just thought, now I'm going to die, but I can die with peace. He wasn't asking for God to extend his life. He was asking God to equip him to live the way he believes that he had already died, and now he can just go in and do the operation, which they did. Apparently, the, the Americans lost 19, and the Somalis lost like 1,500 people. That was a huge battle. And he was able to bring a lot of his team out and rescue, and, and, and even afterwards, he said people immediately would come up to him and say, how did you do that? Like, like right then and there, they were asking about the radio communications they had heard. Where did you get your peace? How did you have the wherewithal to do that in the middle of such a horrific situation. And his answer was, I had already died. And now I was just going to go in and live. Does that sound foolish? It should a little bit. But that is the gospel. If it starts to sound foolish, you're getting close. My fear is if you think, ah, that's what I do every day, then yeah. But if it starts to sound a little bit foolish, 
but attractive, the Spirit is at work. And my prayer for us as a congregation is for revival, that we would stop trying to measure up in our lives here in Stillwater and recognize we've already died and we've risen. Let's quit trying to measure up to death. Let's start living as risen Christians. Believing, let's read these words of the gospel and believe them and quit reading them and showing them on things and putting them on walls and ignoring them every day. Do you believe that you have died and risen again because of what Jesus has done? Because if you do, whatever it is that's occupying you and causing you stress will lose its power and fall to the ground. Let us pray. Jesus, you are glorious, the glorious king. Lord, not only did you go in and slay the giant of death and sin, but you sent your spirit into our hearts who cries out, Abba, Father. And now as Christians, we can worship, we can run in, we can face whatever it is that you've put in our path, whatever seems big to the world, we can face easily in you. Lord, I know it's not easy to do. In fact, on our own effort, Lord, there's absolutely no way we could ever do this. But I pray that our, um, all of those of your children in this room would rely on you in repentance and faith every time we see anything in our own hearts, anything that's challenging in us, anything that creates tension, major or small, that we would run to you and say, what would this look like if I can't die? What would this look like if I could not be harmed? Give us that faith, Lord Jesus. Amen.